in your Twitter bio, it says that you are a certified rat tickler. You know what? You're, you're the first person to, to ask about that, and I'm delighted. Um, yeah, <laughs> the, the, so, so it turns out there is a, an online course you can take on the best way to tickle rats, and this is intended for like research settings because they've discovered that rats that are relaxed and socialised uh, do better in, in research. And I went, this course will take like an hour of my life, but for the rest of my life, I'll be able to tell everybody I'm a certified rat tickler. So that's what I did. No. <laughs> I got to tell you, Nick, in a million years, I didn't think this was like a serious it thing. Is, it is a real thing. <laughs> hey, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing. This is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome to the conversation. Today, I was really excited to talk to Nick Johnson. He's the founder and lead developer of the Ethereum name service, or .ens. You might have seen that in people's Twitter handles or uh, some celebrities like Jimmy Fallon or um, Budweiser last year jumped in and bought uh, .ens names. So what it is, it's a decentralized way of naming that uh, can, can obviously link to someone's wallet or to a website if you use the IPFS system. We talked today about Nick growing up in Christchurch, New Zealand, about how he was featured in CNN uh, back in 1997 for having solved the Y2K problem. We talk about D&D and Dungeons and Dragons. Hope you enjoy the episode. And with all that, uh, let's get to it. Hey, Nick, how you doing? Good, thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for being here as well. So I have a very good friend of mine who's from New Zealand. And I, so I've been properly trained. And I know that a kiwi is a bird. And a kiwi fruit is a small kind of hairy green That's fruit right. that sometimes can be quite bitter. <laughs> Um, so she, yeah, she would smack me. Hello, George, if you're listening, she would smack me every time, um, I called her a Kiwi. So, um, how are you doing down in New Zealand these days? Pretty good. Yeah. I, it's always a bit weird. I, I lived in the Northern hemisphere for quite a while and now kind of understand the backward seasons backwards to me. So it's always a bit weird, you know, being down here in summer while everyone else is talking about snow and cold and stuff. Right. Here it's you know barbecue on the beach weather. Yeah, but you grew up with that, so that was normal, right? Or, or was Christmas yeah. and, and all of that a big part of your life as a, as a child? Yeah, I think so. And uh, somehow it never really struck me as odd that all the Christmas cards had you know robins and and you know sleighs <laughs> and and snow and stuff on them. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it was yeah. We always celebrated it though. Yeah, tell me about that. I, I would love to talk to you first about growing up in New Zealand and what that was like. Tell me, like, what, what was the, the area you grew up in? Were you in a city? Were you out in the country? Um, and what, what was your family up to at that point? I grew up in Christchurch, which is where I'm living now as well, actually, after a long hiatus. It was, you know, it's a smallish city, 300,000 people. Uh, is that the on the north? That's the North Island, correct? No, or the Auckland South Island. Is, oh, and is Auckland north? Auckland's top of the north, basically. Okay, yeah, sorry, yeah. I had those reversed. Uh, you know, you, you may have heard of Christchurch because of the massive earthquakes that caused so much damage here, of course, about a decade ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, an, it was a nice place to grow up. And I'm sort of a, what's it called, a geri geriatric millennial. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, growing up, the internet wasn't really a thing to start. And it only sort of developed when I was a teenager, you know, or became accessible to, to end users when I was a teenager. And so that was sort of transformative for me and i think it's it's really changed new zealand's place in the world as well just being so much better connected given how you know physically distant we are 
Yeah, that's one thing I was curious about growing up in Christchurch. What were um, the expectations of you, like from your parents or just in general, like the vibe of like, was it like expected that you had to go to Auckland or to Sydney or to Hong Kong to like get a job? Or what was that like in that community? Growing up, it was very much not the case, uh, you know, that, that you're expected to leave, you know, but I wasn't heavily involved with, or, you know, my family wasn't heavily involved with tech stuff beyond my own interests. So we didn't really see, you know, that sort of end of things. And it is or was kind of the case that if you're working in tech, there's a pretty high chance that somebody's going to, you know, try and hire you to another country because there is a tech scene in New Zealand, but it's not that big. And, you know, places overseas tend to be more prestigious and pay more often. So was it kind of idyllic? Were you out in the countryside, you know, running around with the sheep? Um, and is it true that there are more, still more sheep in New Zealand than people? Oh, yeah, there's, there's something like 10 times as many sheep as there are people, but they're not evenly distributed. So I was very much a, a suburbs sort of, you know, city kid, really. And did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have a brother and a sister who are both, uh, so my sister is five years younger than me and my brother's two years younger than that. Okay. Did you guys get along? Uh, yeah, I think like they were born sufficiently late in the game that I was very much the big brother, you know, sort. Uh, so there wasn't really any direct competition between me and them, but they certainly bickered. Yeah. Did you take to that role, like the big brother kind of like uh, overseeing them kind of in a bit? I think so. Yeah. I, there was never like a sort of a loco parentis type thing. You know, it was it was very much big brother rather than parent instead, you know, mm -hmm. but it made it a pretty easy relationship. And did they go into tech as well? No. Uh, my sister's a photographer uh, and my uh, brother works for a, a major gun company selling to, you know, uh, clubs and, and businesses around New Zealand. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Quite different. Yeah. And what were your parents doing back then? My, uh, my mum's always worked in the charity sector and my dad uh, did a variety of sort of management type roles in different companies, consultancies and so forth. Okay. In doing some research on you, one of the fun things I, I came across was uh, an article from 1997 uh, on CNN yes. <laughs> where they, they interviewed you. Uh, because you claimed that you had come up with a fix for the Y2K bug. <laughs> <laughs> it's slight overstatement. I, <laughs> I claimed that I'd come up with a fix for one very specific part of the Y2K bug, which was, was true. I wrote like a, a reasonably straightforward program that when you ran it on a, a home PC uh, would basically, each boot it would detect, you know, what date the computer thought it was and correct it to the correct date. Because I noticed that, you know, PCs whose BIOSes weren't upgraded would like jump back 20 years. And I'm like, well, that's easy. You just run some tests, see how far it jumps back, and then adjust that on every boot to the correct time. Right. So it solved a small issue that like if you had a PC that you hadn't upgraded, you know, or you couldn't upgrade and wasn't going to work post 2000, now it would. But I guess the like, you know, 14-year-old tech genius narrative is just too tempting for, like, the media to pass up. So yeah. it very quickly ballooned from, you know, 14-year-old rights school program to help home PCs into, like, you know, 14-year-old solves Y2K bug single-handedly. <laughs> yeah, damn that media. Reading it, and yeah, this was 1997, hmm. um, it made me chuckle. 
because they use the example if uh, okay right after a second after midnight on you know um, 2000 the year 2000 if you're in new york and you called your friend um in los angeles where it hadn't the year hadn't changed and the phone company hadn't updated its software it might charge you for a phone call lasting 99 years mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. or alternately refund you one for last one that lasted negative 99 years <laughs> yeah right uh, so I, I remember Y2K pretty well. Uh, I was a young adult and we were with all my friends in, in Morro Bay, California, which is kind of a secluded part of the central coast in California, just in case, you know, everything went down. But of course, nothing happened and it was really quite a non-event. But 1997, you said you were 14 at that point. Mm-hmm. How many years prior to that had computers kind of come into your life and like how did you you know when did you start like tinkering with code and how did you how did you even get into that if your dad's kind of in management consulting and your mom's in the charity sector was it just something that was completely self-directed or did you have uh, someone in your life that kind of pointed you in this direction i i pretty much owe it to my granddad uh my on my mom's side he was always into tech and stuff and so he had like you know even pre like uh you know intel pcs uh he had like a, an amstrad which was you know a very early sort of uh, akin to the commodore uh you know personal computer yeah. and uh you know he showed it to me and i was immediately hooked uh and so he helped me get my first computer at age eight and he helped me start to learn my first programming language at the same age and i kind of just you know took off from there was that c then that was oh no this was uh amstrad basic okay yeah the it was possible to program the amstrad in assembly i'm not sure if there was a c compiler for it but i was very much at the well the basic end of things at that point and what was it as an eight-year-old that just grabbed you about that I don't know. I, I guess I, I have an analytical mind. I like to solve problems by by breaking them up into parts, you know, analyzing them and figuring out the best ways to do them. Uh, I've always had an interest in like, you know, I guess algorithms and, and that sort of thing, you know, mm-hmm. and so this just scratched all those itches. It was like, you know, I can I can make this thing do what I want it to, you know, and, and what's more, once I've done that, I can give that to someone else and it'll continue doing it, you know, and they don't have to know how I built it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a permanence to it, right? That's a very mm. alluring. Yeah. Do you play chess? Uh, I mean, I know the rules, and I've played it a few times, but I'm definitely not a player. Okay. Yeah, breaking up a, a problem into pieces and trying to solve those pieces oh. made me think of chess. Uh-huh. I'm playing a lot with my sons now, uh, and they're kicking my butt, so <laughs> it's not fun. Um, help. And then I also noticed uh, that you're a big fan of Dungeons and Dragons, mm. uh, and that you like to make your own uh, uh, set, like well, pieces, and and uh, I guess I'm not sure what to call it. But was that something that you got into back in that same time period, sort of like eight to fourteen? No, that was sort of a lot later when I first went to uni and I met some basically other nerds, uh, and they played D and D, and so I sort of got into a bit as a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember being a kid, probably I was about eight, and I think 1980-ish when D&D sort of, I think, got real popular. And I was on vacation with my parents at our grandparents' house in Pennsylvania. It's pretty rural, and I got my dad to buy me a D&D kit, and he and I tried to play D&D with just two people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a total disaster. Yeah. Um, but 
when the pandemic came around with COVID, I kind of reconnected with a lot of my college buddies uh, who all have kids, a bunch of boys, basically. And we all started playing once a week on uh, the D&D Beyond, uh, which was mm-hmm. really fun and kind of something that sort of it definitely gave me something to look forward to uh, throughout the weeks. Have you ever done that online? Yeah, I um so I sort of dropped D&D after I left uni and then got back into it uh, when I was living in the UK, met an amazing group of people there and we played in person. But when I moved to New Zealand, or back to New Zealand rather, we started playing online a bit uh, using D&D Beyond and Roll20 and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then since then, I've picked up a local group, but we're distributed around New Zealand, so we also play online. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it's incredibly effective at like actually getting people together reliably and being able to play. Like I, you know, if I could, I would play in person, but you know, it's almost as much fun as being there, and it's way easier to do. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, yeah, it's, if anyone is curious about it, you should definitely check it out. From 14 now, you're, you're hooked on computers. You're getting interviewed as a child genius by CNN. Um, what, what's your path? What are you thinking? Like, you, do you know at that point that computers are what you want to do with the rest of your life? Or how are you thinking about it back then? Oh, I, I pretty much knew that from age eight when I first started learning to program. By age 14, yeah, it was definitely, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do school and then I'm going to go to uni and get a degree in computer science and then I'm going to be a software engineer. or probably programmer I thought at the time and you know which is which is more or less what I did except that I uh, never finished the degree because I got a part-time job working in software and during my first year and that sort of gradually ate up more and more time until what do you know I'm actually a professional software engineer full-time yeah yeah so you just kind of I mean you just started doing it right sounds like pretty much yeah yeah what there wasn't a whole lot of of computer education at high school at my age, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I was there. So I kind of had to self-teach in large degree. And were you still in Christchurch at this point or had you gone somewhere else? Yeah, I didn't leave until, uh, after, you know, well after I'd started working professionally. Okay. Did the, um, you know, the big dot-com bubble and bursting have any effect on you or what, what did you make of all of that being sort of like you were right in the scene at that point? Yeah, and it definitely, like, you know, I watched it happen, but it's sort of at a distance, as it were. Like, I don't really recall it affecting the company I was working at that much. Um, but it was, you know, obviously it had enormous impacts on, you know, larger companies and in the US and so forth. Yeah. Tell me about your path. Like, what was um, what was intriguing to you and what was, like, making you want to continue on with computer science and, and what you were doing in the programming world? Were you, like, were you still solving problems like you like to do as a kid? Yeah, I think so. I guess, uh, you know, my in retrospect, my first professional job was a little mundane, you know, like it was building fairly straightforward stuff. But at the time, it was all new to me and it was an opportunity to sort of flex and, and expand my skills. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I was doing computer science at uni. And although I didn't finish the degree, it definitely gave me a much more solid foundation in computer science principles, which, you know, I didn't really know that well when I first started, but was something that like really appealed as something to learn, you know, that, that re- I found really engaging. And after about four years working at this company, uh, I got uh, offered a, a job at a company in Seattle. So I decided to go work for them. 
Uh, that didn't really work out. So I came back to New Zealand, worked some more in the software industry here uh, before a couple of years later, uh, getting a job offer from Google in, in Dublin, Ireland, uh, which cool. I did take up. And, and that was my first proper international move. Yeah. What were you doing for Google? So my first role at Google was uh, SRE, Site Reliability Engineer. So I was one of the team that got pinged at six in the morning when uh you know, when Big Table went down because I was on the, the Big Table team. For those of us who don't know, like me, what's, uh, what's Big Table? Big Table is a big non relational database that uh, Google pioneered that is basically capable of storing billions of records across an entire cluster of computers with effectively unlimited access and updates and so forth. Um, it, it's sort of one of the first, um, you know, large distributed NoSQL databases. Is that what made Google so fast and so reliable? Uh, it's used for some of their stuff. Basically, anything that needs regular updates, like so, like the search index, for instance, isn't on Bigtable because they, at least back in the day, they indexed it periodically and then pushed the whole update, you know, and distributed that. It doesn't need to be updated live. But then they had like another index on top of that just for the latest documents and that sort of stuff was hosted on Bigtable. Okay. Um, some yeah, of their, you know, most of their offerings like uh, Gmail and so on were built on top of Bigtable. Okay. Yeah, I've asked other people this because I, as I remember, Google, the thing that really set them apart, and this might be apocryphal, I'm not sure, but it was it Sergey Brin and um, uh, his co-founder, his name Larry I was Page. on. Larry Page. Yeah, Larry Page. That they came up with this idea of like having a bunch of hardware in parallel and that that's what made it super fast. Am I on the right page with that? Do More I or less, that yeah. They've they've published some papers on it, and yeah, I think you're thinking about the way Google Search worked at the time. I don't. I have no idea yeah. what it's like today. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Was that a big culture shock for you going from New Zealand to Dublin, Ireland? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, going from a a city of three hundred thousand from and a country of you know under four million to a city that had more people in it than my entire country, uh, you know, was had a big impact. Uh, it was a sort of a density that I hadn't really encountered before. Um, and the, the work environment was quite different too, because everywhere I'd worked prior to then had no more than sort of 20 people max in the company. Uh, and suddenly I was, you know, on one floor of one building of a campus that was one of many campuses around the world, you know. Yeah. Another thing I uh, enjoyed reading about you is that you like to brew your own beer at home. I do. Any chance that Guinness in uh, Dublin kind of started a love affair with you with that? Funnily enough, no. There were a couple of other SREs who liked to brew, but I didn't really uh, cotton on to it at the time. It was only uh, after I came back to New Zealand that I really started to play around with home brew. Uh, and it was actually sort of getting back together with my brother when I'd been away for so long and us picking it up as a joint hobby. What kind of beers do you like to brew? What's one of your favorite styles, I guess? I think, like, I, I like making, you know, sort of easy-to-drink sort of summer lagers and, and stuff like that. I particularly like there's a local brewery that does a ginger-infused beer, and I've always been trying to replicate it. Ah. But the thing that really set home brewing apart for me was hazy uh, IPAs because... Uh, when homebrewers first started picking up on them, they just weren't available in the shops. And, you know, I don't know about over there, but here, um, the 
you know, they've just gone crazy for it. You know, you, you every third beer on the shelves now is a hazy. Yeah, like I can confirm that here in the US as well. It's it's everywhere. Yeah, and and back but back then they just you, the only way you could get them was to make them yourself. And okay. they're also a beer that doesn't travel very well. In fact, so even now, if you make them yourself, will probably be substantially better than what you can get on the shelves. Yeah. Um, I've been known to drink a beer or two in my day, and I, I've been curious. Like I've been drinking IPAs now for years and years, and I've I've wondered if it's ever going to kind of tap out. Sort of like if you remember the movie Sideways, it sort of like gave Merlot a bad name, and nobody wanted to mm-hmm. drink Merlot for a long time. Um, but uh, it doesn't seem like IPAs are going anywhere. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's it's a bit funny though because like a hazy IPA is so unlike a regular IPA in taste that it it almost doesn't deserve the label, you know. Yeah, and you can infuse so many like grapefruit flavors or other things that are just really nice in there um, so it, it definitely takes it away from the sort of like bitter kind of ipas that we were getting back 10 years ago yeah while you were at google was that when did crypto sort of first cross your radar was it while you were uh, a software engineer at google or did it come after that it was. It was actually my second stint at Google because, uh, you know, amongst moves between countries, staying at Google, I sort of I left and then I came back again. And after coming back, I'd been working for a while, uh, this time as a software engineer. And I got uh, an email from a headhunter for a, a large financial services firm saying, hey, would you like to come work for us uh, on Ethereum? And I sort of went, well, no, this sounds like a really boring place to work. But what's this Ethereum thing? Let's take a look. And I started playing around with it and was like, I'd I'd come across Bitcoin a couple of years earlier and been like, oh, you know, this is cool, but it's kind of just money. You know, it's not like that programmable and flexible, which I always thought would be the cool thing about a decentralized system like that. And so then I came across Ethereum and I was like, whoa, this is exactly what I was, I've been thinking about, you know, that would be really nice to have and it's something i'd you know speculated about for a long time like before bitcoin came along just thinking about how nice it would be to be able to do that sort of distributed trustless computation yeah um so it really appealed and i started writing code on it and uh you know building libraries and stuff and next thing i know the ethereum foundation is reaching out about a job so what was it about that decentralized sort of underpinning architecture that appealed to you? Why did you want that? You had been at one of the biggest centralized sort of tech Mm -hmm. companies in the world, right? Were you feeling like, you know, I'd like to give people more control over what they're doing? Or where 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 were you coming at it from to want to make um, a more decentralized sort of architecture the norm? I, I, I wish it was quite that noble, but honestly, my... I'm just fascinated with computer science and and algorithms and building distributed systems. Uh, you know, I've, I've played around with the more mundane P2P systems and stuff like that. And I love the idea of building a system that's more than the sum of its parts, building one that, it, that runs in a decentralized distributed fashion without having anybody who's, you know, centrally controlling it. Because doing that is fundamentally harder, but it means that yeah, everyone is kind of an equal participant in the system. You can build a system that scales beyond its creator. And I don't know, that just fundamentally seems much more interesting and, and valuable to me than writing some API that's served from a web server in a data center. Mm. And, and to be fair to Bitcoin, I mean, that is what Bitcoin 
kind of introduced to the world, right? It was that sort of unstoppable, you know, distributed system. But again, like so many people I've spoken to um, in the Ethereum world, they quickly got bored of, of how limited it was and wanted to do more. And that's why Ethereum really kind of um, grabbed them. Once you had this sort of canvas in front of you with Ethereum, what and, and it was a distributed system, what, what was your, kind of your first impulse of like, oh, I, I want to try to build this? One of the first things I built was basically developer tooling. I, I wrote a library for manipulating strings in Solidity because there was nothing around to already do that and various people needed it. Um, and I've always sort of been drawn to building infrastructure and developer tooling and stuff like that. Um, which seems unglamorous, but it sort of really exercises those muscles for me around, you know, building infrastructure, building algorithms, you know, making things sort of neat and tidy, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, we had uh, Kosala Hamanchandra on uh, the show a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. He was my Ether wallet. Same, same thing, like the wallet didn't exist or, you know, like he was just getting in there on the test net and building things that did not exist yet. And uh, it's, it's quite amazing. It, it's hard for me to kind of... Think of a parallel in, in, in the world of when you can get in on something like this and just actually mm -hmm. start building the nuts and bolts of it. And that's one thing as a reporter and a writer that I've been fascinated by is watching this ecosystem evolve and grow right in front of my eyes. You know, like I, I know how the traditional financial world works and exchanges and, you know, investors and banks and seeing that all kind of repurposed in a peer to peer fashion has just been really fascinating. Yeah, for me too. So, okay, you realize Ethereum's not a boring place to work, and the foundation eventually came out to, to was that Ming Chan's era when she was there? Yes. Okay. And what were they coming to you for? What do they want you to, to help them with? Uh, well, they had openings in a couple of core teams, and they were basically like, you know, which of these would you like to work on? Uh, and so the offers were basically the Swarm team building decentralized storage, uh, and the Go Ethereum team building the, the core client. Uh, and at the time, I, I went for Swarm, um, partly because I was so new to all of this, and I was like, well, the network's there, it's working, like how much can there really be to do on the core client, and how wrong was <laughs> I, you know? Um, and so I worked on Swarm for a little while, um, and that was sort of the when ENS originated. But as a, as a main job, like I, I kind of... I didn't have the same vision for Swarm as the Swarm team. So I ended up moving over to the Go Ethereum team and working on the, the Go Ethereum client instead. And did Swarm morph into IPFS or was that a completely different project? Their IPFS is a separate effort that started around the same time as Swarm, I want to say, maybe a bit earlier. But that was consensus? Am I correct that IPFS? Uh, no, IPFS consensus? is its own separate thing. Ah, okay. So you're back at the Go client and now you've had the ENS idea. Maybe um, just tell everybody what ENS is and, and, and what, you know, in my opinion, it's probably uh, the most successful application that's come out of Ethereum or out of Web3, in my opinion, because it's just, you know, it's, it's so widely used and it's such an easy, or it makes the user experience so much easier. Um, so I, 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 I love it. I have, I have an ETH address. Uh, and, and anyway, but let's just take a step back and tell everybody what the Ethereum name system is all about. Mm. And, and, you know, you raised usability. That really is its core goal. Basically, 
ENS is, is at its core a way to name decentralized resources, whether that's your Ethereum address or your Bitcoin address or a website you're hosting on IPFS or uh, you know or any number of other decentralized storage systems. Um, its goal effectively is to make sure that nobody has to deal with 0x, blah, 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 you know, the, the 40-character long hex identifier or, or the equivalent for Bitcoin or anything else. The internet solved this back in the 80s with DNS, and it was kind of shocking to me coming into crypto that nobody had seriously tackled this for crypto. You know, the usability was so bad in part because, uh, you know, it was like sending people bank account numbers, only far worse. Um, And that led to usability issues. It also led to making it easier to scam people and so forth. Or if you mess up one of those characters, right? Exactly. And you're screwed and there's no recourse. Yeah, fortunately, Bitcoin has a checksum, but uh, Ethereum Ethereum doesn't, uh, much to my dismay. But in the end, it ought to be irrelevant because our goal is nobody ought to be typing that in the first place. You know, you always ought to be able to use a a name to refer to your uh, identity or to your account. Yeah, and just so people are clear, um, mine is MatthewL.eth, and that that links to one of my Ethereum wallets. So all I have to do is type that into um, any you know, transaction that I'm working on in it. it uh, that's all I have to remember is MatthewL.eth, uh, your Nick.eth, which I'm, I'm sure is really hard to remember. Um, <laughs> and so, so that that's obviously just like way easier than, you know, like you were mentioning the uh, 0x, you know, E591, blah, 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 blah. But I, I guess I didn't know this before I started doing some research for this show, but you can also run websites off of an ENS. Can you can you tell me like how that works and why somebody would want to do that? Yeah, I mean, so so at its simplest, you can point your ENS name as an IPFS hash, uh, and it serves the same basic purpose. You you enter the ENS name into your browser, uh, and it resolves to the IPFS content. And we also support Rweave and and a couple of others. There's sort of two ways that can work. One is that if you have a browser plugin like MetaMask uh, that enables it, you can simply type it and it will resolve it for you uh, the same as a regular TLD, uh, top-level domain, that is. Um, And if you don't, then there's uh, eth.link and eth.limo are two gateway services. So you can add .link or .limo to the end of any ENS name uh, and it will enter it into your browser and it will load anywhere because they're, they're hosted as public services. Okay. And then we keep saying IPFS, that's interplanetary filing system, I believe. Yes. And that is a distributed way of, of, uh, of managing storage, right, for websites that's right. and content, right? So now you've got your ENS, which you own directly and you control, and no one can take it from you. And then you, you can have, you can use IPFS as a distributed peer to peer. Is it peer to peer or? It is, yeah. Okay. And it's a distributed system for hosting kind of websites. And now, so we've gone from a very centralized um, structure in Web2 to a, a mostly or entirely decentralized way of, of creating content for Web3. Yeah, exactly. Was that goal always in mind when you came up with the naming system idea, or was has there been an evolution there to, towards that? It was, I mean, it was basically there from the beginning because I started it when I was on the Swarm team and and that was out of both my interest in naming and and infrastructure and their need to have a way to to name Swarm resources. Uh, So right from the beginning, there was the idea it wouldn't just be a way to name your wallet, it would be a way to to point to decentralized content as well. 
Yeah, and all this work began, I guess, with a grant, right, from the Ethereum Foundation, and that that was that you won and then developed the ENS project from there going forward. More continued than uh, than began. Uh, so you know, it started off as a sort of a side project inside the Ethereum Foundation, um, and it grew to the point where it was consuming all of my time at the EEF, and I was no longer really contributing to to Go Ethereum, um, and then. Uh, you know, they said, well, well, this is sort of outgrown just you. Um, and we could create a team internally, but we're sort of trying to decentralize the ES, uh, the EF as well. Um, so how about we, we give you a grant, you go off, you start your own foundation, your organization, uh, you get, you can use it to hire some people and start to grow it, you know, to the, the size it should be. Um, and I, said that sounded good. They asked how much I wanted. Oh, that's always nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I came up with some figures and and they took it away and Vitalik came back and said, that's not nearly enough here. Have twice what you asked for. Uh, so It's even better. And and he was long-sighted because the amount I asked for just wouldn't have worked. Like I, it was the first time I would have run a business with employees and, you know, it would have done a year's runway and then we would have just been coming back to them and going, oops, you know. Yeah, I'm in that boat now, and I'm trying to avoid that exact situation. So, And then another thing this touches on that really fascinates me is the, the conundrum of digital identity in a peer-to-peer world where there are no central actors like a Department of Motor Vehicles or a passport uh-huh. office to vouch for you. How can uh, ENS help with that, and, and how do you see that developing? Because I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think everyone's working, or a lot of people are working towards that but I don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah, I think there's this misperception that identity requires uh, a central issuer, effectively. Um, mm. But but pseudonymous identity is a thing too, and the important thing there is the persistence of the identity and the fact that you can prove you're the same person who, was talking, you, who you were talking to yesterday. And... ENS enables that by allowing you to to make your ENS name into a profile, into an identity that represents you, you know, and links to your other identities around the web, whether that's your email address or your Twitter handle or whatnot. It's definitely, as you say, it's got a long way to come, but there are serious efforts along those lines, uh, like sign in with Ethereum, which we sponsored in conjunction with the Ethereum Foundation and makes it possible to, to sign in to, you know, centralized and decentralized apps using the same credentials you use to sign transactions. Yeah, and that, that could be an ENS name, for example. Yes. Did it give you pause when, I think it was after the Tornado Cash uh, situation happened with, with OFAC, that some people, you know, if, like Jimmy Fallon and some other folks have very public ENS names, you know, they were sent some of, like, the Tornado Cash uh, or just, transactions like Mm -hmm. did that give you pause or is that just part of the part and parcel of what you're you're building here or how did you think about that i hope it's obvious to anyone that by giving out your ens name you are pointing them at the wallet it points to you know and i uh, i've always said that you know that the privacy is a real issue on blockchains but it's kind of for blockchains and their infrastructure to solve Naming an account isn't intrinsically a privacy-reducing measure unless you're careless about how you do it. And, you know, effectively, not naming your account gives you the illusion of privacy. It's it's a little harder to track down, you know, this long identifier to which person it's identified with. But if you're handing it out to people for payments, if you're handing it out for, you know, see my NFC collection, uh, NFT collection and so forth, 
you're ultimately revealing it as well. You're just giving yourself the illusion that you have more privacy. So I think the real solution is proper privacy preserving primitives uh, rather than uh, security through obscurity. Uh, of course, the OFAX reaction to Tornado Cash is somewhat dismaying because they seem to be taking the approach that financial privacy is illegal, you know, which seems like a very backwards view to me. Yeah, I think there's a lot of sides to that. But um, yeah, the idea that a protocol can be, you know, deemed, uh, you know, which can have valid uses is, is deemed completely off limits is, is way too overreaching, in my opinion. Yeah. Should we say here that like people should be very careful with their wallets and that, um, you know, you should have many different wallets if, if you're serious about this and, you know, you can have a public one where you do public things, but if you're, you know, if you're holding a lot of, a lot of crypto, you, you might not want that to be something that's publicly known. Is, do you want to say anything about that? Cause I always try to like tell people, yeah. you know, be careful because people are going to steal from you if they can. A hundred percent. And, uh, you know, just to, to echo what you've said that, uh, you know, everything on the blockchain is, is transparent and public. And so if you hand it out, you have to expect that people will know it and follow it and so forth. Uh, and separating things up by by intent and use and, and, and just for general privacy is a really good idea. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes tools for that can be a little limited, you know, mostly involving using a centralized exchange so only they have the connection between the two accounts. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a it's a really fundamental principle that as long as we're using an open ledger, you need to sort of take your privacy into your own hands. And I've in my own experience, the really tricky thing is maintaining that hygiene and that separation and not, you know, accidentally drawing links between them that makes it obvious to anyone who cares to look that, you know, these are the same person. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is tricky. And like you were saying at the beginning or when you got involved in the beginning of Ethereum, just building tools that didn't exist. There's still, I think, mm. a lot of tools like that would help people mask accounts that they don't want people to know about. But it's it's also, you know, just it's something that just doesn't quite exist yet. Sort of the latest thing on the ENS front uh, is, is you guys decided to make a DAO, uh, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, to basically mm-hmm. open up the governance and the control of the ENS sort of ecosystem uh, can you tell me about that? Was that always your idea from the beginning, or was that something that you kind of grew into as things went along? Yeah, so right from the very beginning of ENS, uh, we were aware that there were some things that just needed to have sort of privileged control. You know, we had the the root, which decides what top-level domains are added and how they're governed, and we had the, the .eth registrar, which decides how .eth names are registered and renewed and what could be done with them. And it simply wasn't practical to to make all of that immediately immutable. You know, there were too many things that could and would change over time, you know, upgrades and bugs and and changes in price oracles and stuff like that. Um, And our goal was always sort of maximum viable decentralization. Uh, And initially, when we started, you know, we launched back in uh, 2017. The only real DAO was the DAO, which had recently exploded. Um, And so it wasn't exactly a good you know, reference point. So we started off with a multi-sig that, you know, unlike a lot of multi-sigs, was actually governed by independent individuals through the ecosystem, not just team members. And with the intention that as we were able to build better governance mechanisms and, uh, you know, we would. And in fact, our first goal is to remove control and the secondary goal is to decentralize the remaining control. 
So, you know, come 2021, uh, you know, we decided that, uh, you know, we looked at the state of DAOs and DAO tooling and DAO governance and went, yeah, this seems mature enough that we think we can trust. Yeah, DAO uh, was know, no longer a bad over. word by that point. I exactly. Think, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, we can do it now. Um, and in conjunction with that, we also made some changes to limit the power of any human over the names. So at about the same time, we, you know, the, the key holders agreed to flip a switch that means that the .eth registrar can no longer be replaced, meaning that any name that's already registered uh, or renewed can't be affected by anyone other than its registrant. There's no way to, to revoke or reassign an existing name. Uh, what the DAO can do is they can change the process for renewal and registration, but that'll only affect stuff going forward and there'll always be a warning period. How did the token come into it? Was it that simply a governance tool or uh, were there other um, aspects of, of tokenization that, that you guys were looking for? Very, very much so about the governance thing. And again, sort of building from the best tools we had available, you know, we wanted to, to meaningfully decentralize the governance. There's no robust, you know, proof of individuality system we could use. And, and in my opinion, there probably never will be. And so, Governance tokens of that form were state of the art for us to use, and we distributed them, uh, you know, in the airdrop as best we could to ensure that the distribution reflected the people we thought should have the voice in the ecosystem. Yeah. On a higher level, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, ENS is uh, is considered a public good, right, in the Ethereum uh -huh. community, and it's it's something that is basically helping everyone, um, you know, manage their wallets and their, their, you know, websites and everything more easily. So, and I, I was struggling to think of a, a parallel here as well. Like there are public goods in, in the kind of crypto world that exist. And how do you compare it to something? Is it, is this like a nonprofit or a charity or how, what do you, um, what is a public good to you and your, in your mind in the Ethereum and the web three world? And then, what do you compare it to in, in the rest of the kind of traditional world? Definitely a nonprofit. Uh, I guess my shortest description would probably be that a, a public good is something that builds infrastructure that's useful to a wide variety of people, uh, does so in a way that is, um, you know, impartial and that gives back as much of its value to the community that uses it as possible, you know, so it doesn't collect things it doesn't need to in terms of funds or resources and it those that it does that it doesn't need it uses to enhance the ecosystem so in the same way that a nonprofit relies on grants like a public good in the ethereum community or the ecosystem what is how do you guys monetize or how, where does revenue come from are you dependent still on the ethereum foundation or like i think because that's another the sort of token economic question has always been something mm -hmm. that that's interesting as well it's like how do you keep these things going when yeah. it's not really, I mean, I guess you generate money by re, um, registrations and renewals, right? But is that enough to keep the lights on or do you need to try to find other ways to, you know, monetize? Uh, we, we do. And, and we're very fortunate because, uh, you know, the, our golden charging registration fees isn't to make money. And it's because if they were all, if all names are free, they would all be snapped up immediately and, and resold for ridiculous prices and it would become impossible to use the naming system. We've seen that happen with other systems. So we have to charge a fee to sort of 
keep things sane. And we're quite fortunate that that fee isn't is more than enough to keep the lights on, as it were. Um, and so, you know, for the last couple of years, ENS has, has done extraordinarily well. We, you know, we raised twenty twenty one. We raised a revenue of over twenty six million dollars. Twenty twenty two so far is over fifty three million dollars. Um, and, and, you know, that's many times what we need in order to do our operations. So there's a focus on both giving that back in, in public goods grants and also on starting to build an endowment for, for ENS, uh, for the Dow, so that if circumstances change, our ENS's future is still guaranteed. Oh, yeah. So like a rainy day fund or a, a part of the treasury management? Yeah, I, I, it's a little broader than that in my mind, and that what I want is, is to build a fund that is capable of supporting ENS uh, without revenue so that we can make those decisions about what to do with the revenue independent of our need to survive. Oh, I see. So more like an investment fund where you're getting a return? Yes. I get it. Okay. And then it's fun. It's kind of like it, the secondary market pops up as well, sort of like in domain names, you know, where somebody comes to you, like somebody came to me the other day with decentral.eth and wanted to sell it to me for, for two ETH. And <laughs> I said, thanks, but no thanks. Yep. Let's just zoom out a little bit. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, uh, last several months, six months or so has been pretty hard for folks in, in this ecosystem. There's been a lot of um, big, you know, explosive um, failures. Uh Going back to you know Terra Luna and and the depegging and and going forward to all sorts of uh, centralized lenders and obviously FTX is the one that's probably sucking up most of the oxygen uh, in the room these days. You've been in this a long time. How are you feeling right now? And and are there any lessons here or silver linings that you're taking away from what's going on? On a personal basis, like it's it's like watching a car crash, you know, in slow motion that you're not involved in. It's dismaying, and and you know, and and you want to make it happen less often, but I'm not immediately involved with it. Um, I guess the problem is like I and the ENS DAO and everyone I care about can be cautious and and sensible individuals who don't get exposed to these sort of things. And you can avoid that sort of impact directly, but what you can't avoid is the impact this sort of thing has on the ecosystem as a whole. Mm. You know, the, the the trust it destroys, the damage it does, you know, in a wider sense, the sort of contagion it causes. And that's really dismaying to see. And I guess the the only potential silver lining really is that hopefully it will further drive home to people that it doesn't matter how much you think this person or this organization is trustworthy. The whole thing we're trying to build here is to not have to trust centralized entities. It's to build a system that, you know, trust yourself, so to speak, uh, is is the rule of the game. And hopefully it will encourage people to take that more seriously because if everybody only sent F to exchanges to, for an on-ramp and an off-ramp and, and then withdrew the balance after, they wouldn't have nearly the scope for, for a disaster to, to grow this large in magnitude. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say it again, please do that. Use exchanges to get in and out, but if, don't use them for custody. Use, you know, get your yeah. own wallet. Make sure that you know how to uh, how to understand it and how to keep it safe. But don't leave it. You're just you're just holding yourself out there to to be one of these people who just lost, you know, a lot of money when FTX went under. And why give someone control over your own money? You know, like keep control over your own money. That's another huge tenant here. I'd like to echo what you said. The idea that you need to trust someone is 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 the 
sort of basis for the, all of this, going back to Bitcoin, was like, you don't need to trust anybody because the network and the blockchain comes in and, and makes those transactions tr trustless. And so it, that's, you know, I hope people keep that in mind that that's like kind of the core tenant of all of this is that um, there's no need for trust. It's just that you need to make sure that you know what you're doing. Yeah. You know, one last thing, you know, people always say, well, um, everyone builds in a bear market. Uh, you you seem to have gone through two of these now. You know, if you guys got started in 2017, the, one of the, you know, the previous bad crypto winter was, you know, early 2018 into about 2020. Um, we're in one now. Like, are you, um, with your connections in the community and the people you know, do you do you get a sense that that's happening now? Uh, is the cliche actually, is there some some reality to it this time around as well? Oh, 100%. I don't, I don't actually think that people stop building during the bull market. It's just that all of that gets overwhelmed and drowned out by the noise of the speculation and stuff. Um, and yeah, you know, everyone I'm working with is continuing to work on their stuff because the price is noise, you know, unless it gets to the point where you can't keep the lights on. And, you know, my ENS, we're very fortunate that we're in a great position to continue to do that uh, through a bear market. And and I think a lot of other organizations have been very sensible too. Yeah. Okay, before I let you go, I have to ask you one last thing. Uh, in your Twitter bio, it says that you are a certified rat tickler. Uh, so, you, you know Go. what? You're you're the first person to to ask about that, and I'm delighted. Um, yeah, the the so so it turns out there is a, an online course you can take on the best way to tickle rats, and this is intended for like research settings because they've discovered that rats that are relaxed and socialized uh, do better in in research. And I went. This course will take like an hour of my life, but for the rest of my life, I'll be able to tell everybody I'm a certified rat tickler. So that's what I did. No. I gotta tell you, Nick, in a million years, I didn't think this was like a serious it thing. Is, it is a real thing. <laughs> I thought you like had a pet rat and you like to tickle your rat or whatever, because they actually make quite good pets. You know, they're 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 pretty nice. But I can tell you the best <laughs> thing to do is you you grab them gently from behind their head and then you like flip them over onto their backs and you <laughs> little belly. Yep. Little belly tickle. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well that's that's a great place to leave this uh how, how to tickle a rat in the certified fashion uh by nick johnson uh nick thanks so much uh, not just for this conversation but for what you're doing in the public good space here in ethereum and for having this vision and for making it easier for folks to kind of get involved here and and you know keep their stuff together so i just want to thank you for that more broadly and then it's also been a pleasure and thank you for just telling us about uh your personal life and your journey and, and where you think things are headed now oh, very much my pleasure thank you for having me well hey that's it for another episode of decent people thanks so much for joining us make sure to hit that subscribe button check us out on the web at decential.io we're on twitter at decential media our shows are produced by matt solon the music is courtesy of brian duncan and kareem imes thanks so much take care